So it was uh, summer of 2005, and little Gage Henry, a middle schooler, saw the writing on the wall to the end of his first relationship, okay? And the writing on the wall said this, church camp. A few chuckles know what I'm talking about. (laughs) What happens is you go to church camp or your girlfriend goes to church camp, and they get you there earlier in the week, they get you all fired up, and then you're malnourished, you have no sleep, and then a speaker gets on stage and riles everybody up, and there's open mic night potentially where everybody stands up and makes all these big changes to their life. You know what I'm talking about? Um, Maybe it's just me, but there's this big moment where everybody changes their life. So they come back, and of course I knew. I saw the writing on the wall that this is it for me in my first relationship. And we have the conversation. Have you ever had this conversation with a Christian girl before where it's, it's not you, it's Jesus. <laughs> I'm just supposed to date him for a little while, okay? And it wasn't the first time, it wasn't the last time, or it was the first time. It wasn't the last time that that happened to me. But the point of the story being the writing on the wall, a lot of us have that experience. You know what I'm talking about? Maybe you're in one right now. There's a trial happening in your life. There's writing on the wall. It's something you didn't see coming. Maybe it's a job. Maybe it's something in your life where you're like, man, I don't know what's going to happen, but I know it seems like there's impending doom or impending disaster coming my way, so what do I do? And if you've ever used that phrase before, if you've ever written on somebody's Facebook wall, that phrase is not coined by society. That phrase is directly out of Daniel chapter 5. So that's why the title of this sermon, if you need one, is the wall, the wall. Go ahead and tell your neighbor, tear down those walls. Tear down those walls. We're going to do it today in Jesus' name. So if you haven't been here and this is your first time, welcome. Um, but we've been in a series called Daniel. And we're looking at this series through the lens of the children of revival. And all of it has been about Daniel, his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and how they have this opportunity to stay faithful to the one true God. And so they do. So we know that you will either conform to the world around you or you will be transformed by the word within you. And so this whole entire story has been building up to this moment. And if you missed last week, you've got to go back. Because Daniel chapter 4 and Daniel chapter 5 are actually one story. So last week, if you missed it, we talked about Nebuchadnezzar and the story of Nebuchadnezzar, this king who was humbled. But then God, once he humbled himself back, lifted him back up and restored his kingdom. So that's the first part of the story. And just so you know, we're about to open up into Daniel chapter 5, and some stuff has happened since then. Some things you need to know. Daniel, I mean, sorry, uh, Nebuchadnezzar has a son, and there's some fighting over who takes over control, but there's another son named Nabonidus, who's actually king, but he's off fighting this war, so his son, Belshazzar, is in control of Babylon. So he's there as the king of Babylon in this moment, and Nebuchadnezzar has died, he passed away, so the story we're about to read is 23 years later, the story of Belshazzar. And again, Daniel's writing this so that you see the, the two stories colliding in one moment. And so we know, and we've learned recently, that if two stories have a beginning and an end, there's something in the middle, and that's the point of the author. Talk about it, it's a chiasm. Okay, yeah, okay, so the center of chapter 4 and chapter 5 is this verse, I'm going to put it on the screen. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, this is the end of Nebuchadnezzar's story, praise and exalt and glorify the king of heaven, because everything he does is right and all his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. And that's the center of the story. The point of these two stories is those who walk in pride he is able to humble. And I just want you to know that this is what's crazy about this story to me. You are one generation away from a dishonored family name. You are one generation away. Some of you right now, you've been following Jesus for years. And you think, for sure, my family's going to keep doing that. 
But we're about to see in the story of Belshazzar and Nebuchadnezzar that there is something at stake if you do not humble yourself before an almighty God. So before we open the Bible, I just want to give you the context of what's happening. The Persian army, the Medo-Persian army, has surrounded the gates of the city. But there's some factors you need to know, understand about Babylon. One, there's, it's the ancient wonder of the world. The Babylon hanging gardens are inside the walls. They have food enough to last them for 20 years. The Euphrates River actually flows directly through the city, so they'll never run out of water. And I just want to make sure I read these stats because they're just insane. There's 56 miles of walls surrounding the city. Those walls are 80 feet thick. 12 chariots could ride on top of the walls. They're 320 feet tall. Football field, straight up. A hundred solid bronze gates. Babylon is the greatest empire this world has ever seen. And the Persian army is surrounding this city and wanting to lay siege to it. And we're about to open up the story of Belshazzar. So if you have your Bible, hold it up. Hold it up. If you think that the Bengals are going to win today the Super Bowl, turn with me to Daniel chapter 5. Nobody thinks that the Rams are going to win, apparently. I can tell. Um, sorry, Matt Stafford. Go dogs. Um, go Rams. There's one guy. There you go. Good for you. You're the remnant. Um, Daniel chapter 5, verse 1. Before we get there, you need to know that I'm really pumped about next week because next week is baby dedication. Woo! Yeah, I'm so pumped for it because this is the opportunity for our families to kind of come around, the kids of the next generation, the children of revival. So I'm pumped for next week, but they give you this Bible. This is a journal of the word Bible. You're supposed to highlight verses and write about, um, you know, things that you believe about for your kid in the future. And so I'm going to give this Bible one day to my son. So I'm pumped about it, but I'm excited to preach out of it uh, today. So if you have your Bible, that should have been enough time for you to get there. Daniel chapter 5. Verse 1, we're going to read it. If you're there, say, I'm there. King Belshazzar gave a great banquet for a thousand of his nobles and drank wine with them. While Belshazzar was drinking his wine, he gave orders to bring in the gold and silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem, so that the king and his nobles, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. So they brought in the gold goblets that had been taken from the temple of God in Jerusalem. And the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines drank from them. As they drank the wine, they praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone. And then suddenly, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall near the lampstand in the royal palace. The king watched the hand as it wrote. His face turned pale. And he was so frightened that his, his legs became weak and his knees were knocking. Okay, think about this. Your whole city is surrounded by an army that's trying to take you down. What do you do? Let's throw a party. He throws a banquet. And what kind of banquet? If you look in verse 1, let's read it again. King Belshazzar gave a great banquet for a thousand of his nobles and drank wine with them. So what happens? There's this moment where now Belshazzar has complete contempt for the power of man. I know I'm surrounded. I'm still going to throw a party anyways. So think about this. Picture this. Belshazzar, master of the banquet, king of an empire, center of attention, elevated on a platform above everybody else. A thousand nobles, which by the way, a thousand in the Old Testament, whenever that word, it means like the whole community. It means that everybody who's anybody who's important is at this party. And he's throwing this massive banquet and he starts to get a little drunk. He starts to get a little intoxicated on the power and the pleasure 
So then he says, you know what? This kind of goes through his head. He says, let's go get those articles, the holy ones that came from Jerusalem, and let's drink from them. Because if you notice what's happening, his immorality is turning into idolatry. Something we need to pay attention to. And also the, the fact that a lot of us, what do we do? When the enemy surrounds us in a lot of our lives, what do we do? We numb ourselves. The enemy surrounded us, and we throw a party. So he continues. What happens in verse, let's keep reading verse 2. While Belshazzar was drinking his wine, he gave orders to bring in the gold and silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem so that the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. So here's the moment. They're disobeying the holy articles of God. This is not just, I have contempt, like I said, for man. This is, I have contempt for God. You can't rule me, God. In fact, go ahead and get those things. Let's bring them. Let's drink from them in verse 4. Let's read it. As they drank the wine, they praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Here's this moment. It's so powerful. But if you think back to Daniel chapter 2, we learned that Nebuchadnezzar had a dream. There was a dream of a kingdom that would fall. And now here they are. Think about this. Belshazzar, with all his people around him, with all the nobles, with everybody who's anybody. And what does he say? Let's raise a glass. Let's toast to the gods of gold and silver and bronze and iron and wood and stone. And suddenly, a hand appears. And the hand starts writing on the wall. Why is it a hand? Think about this. Why is it hand? So just so you know, a hand, anytime it's used in the Bible, is always referring to control, sovereign control. You'll find out later that Daniel actually uses these words to say that, hey, Belshazzar, your very life, the very next breath that you have is in God's hand. So this is about control. What happens next? The plaster. Why is it the plaster of the wall? If you go into any throne room, the plaster of the wall is where there would be paintings of the great victories of your kingdom. So the writing is happening directly over all the amazing conquered moments that Babylon did for other kingdoms on the painting. And what's the last thing? The lampstand. That just means that everybody can see. This isn't just him having a moment where he's drunk and he's seeing something. No, this is a moment where everybody is seeing the same thing he's seeing. And what does it say? Suddenly, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote this on the wall. His face turned pale, and he was so frightened that his legs became weak and his knees were knocking. So I want you to pay attention to this. If you walk in pride, you will be humbled. That's where the center of the verse is, right? The center of these chapters. If you walk in pride. So what does that mean? It means you have the opportunity to either choose to fall to your knees or fear will choose for you. It says his knees were knocking. That means he literally fell to the ground. His knees were shaking. He was afraid and he was scared. And the very reason earlier, he had shook his fist at God. Now God is shaking him in fear. There's this powerful moment where it applies to our lives. So we're going to keep going. And I don't have time to get into all the details. So I'm just going to kind of quote each one real quick and go through it. Verse 7. So the king is freaking out. He calls in the wise men, the astrologers, all the people into the kingdom. None of them can read it. Verse 8. Verse 9. He becomes more terrified because no one can read it. Verse 10. Thank God for the queen. Okay. Because this is where the queen steps in. His mother. Here's the commotion and comes in and says, what's going on in here? Finds out, sees the writing on the wall and goes, hey, hey, hey. There is a man who will know how to read this. There is a man in our history who knows how to read these kind of things. Call for Daniel. Bring Daniel in, which I want you to pay attention to this. This is crazy. Nebuchadnezzar had a moment where he was humbled before God, right? 
the next generation, the mother and the father. They knew that story. 23 years earlier, this happened. This is an unbelievable moment. Now Belshazzar doesn't even have Daniel at the party. It's like he's completely forgot about the guy who had all this power and the spirit of the holy gods is in him. And so they call for Daniel. Bring Daniel in here. Which, by the way, I love that Daniel wasn't at the party to begin with. And something you need to know about following Jesus, if you're kind of figuring out if you want to follow him or not, following Jesus means you won't be invited to all the parties. But it does mean sometimes you'll get called when there's trouble at the party. And there's this moment we get in Scripture right here where it's so powerful, where Daniel is the one who's faithful to his God. He's not even at the party. The thousand nobles, he's not one of them. And it says in verse 13 that Daniel is called, and he looks at him and says, Daniel, aren't you one of those exiles? Like, still condescending over him. Like, you're still just one of those exiles. But I hear that you can read this. And if you read this, I'll give you a purple robe, a gold chain. I'll make you third ruler in the kingdom. And it says this in verse 17. Then Daniel answered the king, You may keep your gifts for yourself and give your rewards to someone else. Nevertheless, I will read the writing for the king and tell him what it means. So I want you to pay attention here. He says, I don't want that stuff you want to give me. Why would he say that? He wants you to know that God's allegiance cannot be bought. I'm going to deliver this message because it's true. No other reason. And he says in verse 18, Your majesty, the most high God gave your father, Nebuchadnezzar, sovereignty and greatness and glory and splendor. Because of the high position he gave him, all the nations and peoples of every language dreaded and feared him. Those the king wanted to put to death, he put to death. Those he wanted to spare, he spared. Those he wanted to promote, he promoted. And those he wanted to humble, he humbled. But when his heart, Nebuchadnezzar's heart, when his heart became arrogant and hardened with pride, he was deposed from his royal throne and stripped of all his glory. And here's the story that we read last week, another summary of it right here in verse 21. He was driven away from people and given the mind of an animal. He lived with the wild donkeys and ate grass like the ox. And his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until he acknowledged that the Most High God is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and sets, them, sets over them anyone he wishes. This is the, the fight that we had talked about earlier. This is the glory war. This is like, it's not kingdom of God versus kingdom of Satan. It's kingdom of God versus kingdom of self. The greatest attack of the enemy on our lives is for us to live for ourselves. And this is what's happening in this story. He's like, you remember what happened? And he says in verse 22, but you, Belshazzar, his son or his grandson, you have not humbled yourself, though you knew all of this. Pay attention to that. That's so important. Why does he have so much less patience with Belshazzar than he did with Nebuchadnezzar? Because Belshazzar should have known better. And here's something, just look up here for a second. Here's something you need to know. God will hold you accountable to the truth that he has revealed to you. There's a principle in scripture where God, once he reveals something to us, now we have the opportunity or option to obey. And he holds us accountable to that. So I, I began thinking this week. I'm like, think about Auburn, Alabama. We have what? A church on every street corner. A lot of us grew up in families where God was talked about. We prayed at meals. We did so much. We have a blessing, a lineage of blessing that has been passed down to us. 
in this moment right now. And we are accountable to it. So if you think about it, so many of us in this room have great stories. You have a great family story. So when I talk about generational sin, you're like, look, that's, that's great. But thankfully, I had a parent who actually loved Jesus, and their parents loved Jesus, and their parents loved Jesus. It's this amazing, beautiful thing. So we, I don't want to like, we always harp on generational sin, but I just got to be careful here. If you have a great family, that means you're even more accountable. Just think about Nebuchadnezzar. What happened with that story? Now he humbled himself. And now his grandson is sitting here not choosing to humble himself. So in my life, I've seen that there's this dangerous lie in great families that says growth will just happen. You don't need to be intentional with it. And if I think about it, if, you're, if you grew up a Christian, that doesn't mean you are one. If you grew up around a lot, of a, Christ, a lot of Christians, that doesn't necessarily mean you are one either. What I'm trying to say is, I have watched so many of my friends who are millennials and a little bit older walk away from their faith. Yet what happened their whole life? We were at church Sunday morning. We were at church Sunday night. We had Bible study fellowship during the week. And we had Wednesday night church. We were there all the time. What I saw happen with my parents is they outsourced discipleship to the church. And it's our job. It's our job as the parents to disciple our kids. It's our job to fight for them. It's our job, like the queen didn't do, and tell them, hey, Belshazzar, this is what happened to your grandfather. Don't let it happen to you. Humble yourself if the almighty God calls. So if that's you, if you came with a great family, guess what? We have a legacy to build on. That's amazing. It's a blessing. But at the same time, I do know a lot of you in this room have come from such broken families, and generational sin has been part of your family. And I, I, we say it all the time from stage, but Jesus may live in your heart, but grandpa lives in your bones. You can laugh, it's okay. <laughs> grandpa lives in your bones. It means that there's this evil path of generational sin that is this giant thing that is inviting you to walk upon it. And you have to choose to not to. So what I mean by that is, if you have a line of alcoholism in your family, that means you probably shouldn't drink, even though it's okay. You're 21. If you have unforgiveness in your family, that means you have to learn how to say, I'm sorry, often. If it means that you have materialism and riches of this world and you've chased after those things, it means you learn how to be generous with it. It means if there's moments where you're envious or you covet something else, that means you learn how to celebrate other people. There is this line of generational sin. If you came from a broken family, I know so many people are hurting because of what happened to them when they were kids and they're 40. This is an opportunity to make sure we do not transmit that pain to the next generation, but talk about it. So if you have a great family, guess what? You're accountable. But what happens? Nebuchadnezzar, what's the difference? Pay attention to this. Verse 21, look at it. Until he acknowledged that the Most High God is sovereign over all the kingdoms. That's the moment where it changed for Nebuchadnezzar. Until he acknowledged. He made aware. He was made aware of God's glory and his splendor. But what happened? Keep reading. Verse 23. After Belshazzar, this moment. Instead, you, Belshazzar, have set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. You had the goblets from his temple brought to you, and you and your nobles, your wives and your concubines, drank wine from them. You praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which cannot see or hear or understand, but you did not honor the God who holds in his hand your life and all your ways. This is a moment or he uses the exact language on purpose there to say the message of the hand that's being, is writing this on the wall is the same hand that holds your very life and ways in its hand. Think about this. 
This is an unbelievable moment of literature where you can see that Daniel's trying to get a point across. And what is it? You did not honor the God of your grandfather, and therefore you are being humbled right now before me. And so what I, I think is, is powerful is that we have the opportunity to honor the God in front of our families. So this is what I mean by the children of revival. If we think about what's going to be the difference in our family, I truly believe the difference will be the way that you worship in front of your kids. The difference will be whether or not you actually hunger and you desire for the word of God every day. The difference will be where you actually live out the calling that God has on your life and step forward in bold faith and not stay in security and safety and comfort. Like these are the things that we have the opportunity to do to honor God with our lives before a generation before us and after us. So I had this quote this week because I got kind of confused between glory and honor. Um, So I kind of wanted to read this to you guys and I feel like it'll be helpful. This is from John Tyson who's a pastor, and it's in his book, Beautiful Resistance, says this. Sometimes we can confuse glory and honor in our theology and think they're interchangeable. But making the distinction is key. Glory is inherent in something. It's the intrinsic weight something possesses. It needs no recognition, as C.S. Lewis noted, a man can no more diminish God's glory by refusing to worship him than a lunatic can put out the sun by scribbling the word darkness on the walls of his cell. Honor, however, is recognizing the value of something. This is where honor contains the power to transform. Transform your family. What does that look like? What does it mean for our families to be transformed and not be stuck behind this wall separating us from God? It means that you see God as who he really is. You say, wow, God, you are amazing. You are holy. You are mighty. I see you in the skies. I see you in every single sunrise and sunset. The whole earth declares your glory. But at the same time, you honor him with your lives. It means that you say, not only are you that amazing, you're that amazing to me. You are the most important person in my life. You are the one who I actually live for. You are the one who gives me very breath in my lungs that I have today. And I'm going to honor you with my life. This is the opportunity that we have. And this is what Belshazzar does not do, even though he knows the story. But this is the invitation for us today. If we're going to transform our family, it begins by doing that, by honoring God. But this is the consequence, and let's read it. Verse 24, therefore, he sent the hand that wrote the inscription. This is the inscription that was written. Mini, mini, tekel, parson. Here is what these words mean. Mini, God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed on the scales and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Then, at Belshazzar's command, Daniel was clothed in purple. A gold chain was placed around his neck, and he was proclaimed the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Watch how it ends. So abrupt. That very night, Belshazzar, king of the Babylonians, was slain, and Darius or Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at the age of 62. Wow. That's the end of the story if you don't humble yourself. It's right there. He was slain. And what's crazy is Belshazzar, what what does it say right here? Mini, Tekel, Perez. The number came up short. It's over. You don't weigh enough, your weight came up light. And Perez, your kingdom is about to be divided. That means you're about to fall. And what's amazing is that in Aramaic, they don't write out the vowels, which means that Perez looks the exact same as Persia on the walls. If you think about the consonants, you think about what is written up there, it all looks the same. Divided 
And who are you going to be divided to? Persia. The kingdom is about to fall. And while this is happening, while the words are up on the wall, you know what's happening? See, you know I said the Euphrates River travels directly underneath the city? Well, the Medo-Persian army had actually dug a canal to divert the river to a northern lake. Which means that while Daniel is reading the very words on the wall, the whole army is crawling underneath the city gates in the river path, crawling up under. And you know what's so insane to me? Is that it says in historical documentation of this battle, there was no battle. They got there and they slayed Belshazzar and that was it. You know why I believe that happened? Who was all in the city gates? The exiles. What did the exiles know? Their Bible. Their Bible, what did it say in the prophets? Isaiah 45, 1 talks about how this is actually going to happen 170 years earlier. So all the people who had read Isaiah, who knew Isaiah, knew like, uh-oh, the army's circling the walls and is led by the very person that Isaiah predicted would take this whole kingdom down. So when they walked in, they were all like, yep, this is the God we serve, exactly how he planned it. We knew this would happen. And there's this moment where Belshazzar, though, is humbled in front of everybody else. So what does that mean for our lives today? So I want to frame it in this way. At the end of your story, Mini, is your life filled with worth? Because your days are numbered. I had a pastor this week tell me. He said, think about the numbers of your days. Psalm 90 tells us to number our days so we might have a heart of wisdom in the way that we live. So think about this. Think about this. You go to a tombstone. It says what? A number on one side? And it has a number on the other side. And that means... Your whole life is that dash, and that's it. What does that dash say? Does your life, is it full of worth? Is it numbered in the way where, wow, I used every single opportunity, I used every single breath of, that I had in this life to bring praise and honor and glory back to God? Is your life filled with worth? Number two, tickle or tackle. Is your life filled with weight? So think about this. It's kind of confusing because we don't use these anymore. You might have used this back in like science class, back in the day. You ever get those scales? You know what I'm talking about? It's like a scale, and on one side, you would put how much is owed, and that way you're supposed to put that much on the other side to balance it out. And so this is a moment where Belshazzar is being told by Daniel and by God, hey, look, your scale came up wanting, which means your spiritual and moral character did not match the righteousness required by God, so you will fall. So how does God weigh us? How does God weigh our lives? Number one, the law. We talk about this all the time, the law of God. I mean the Ten Commandments. You shall have another. God's before me, you shouldn't have idols, and so on and so forth. And what we know about the law is that if you commit even just one of them, you are guilty of all of them. And what I mean by that is even if you just stole something small, it's equivalent as if you murdered somebody or you committed adultery. How do I know that? There's a story of Jesus where he's asked this, this question, this moment is happening where this unbelievable scene is unfolding where there's a woman caught in adultery and she's sitting there in front of the whole city and everybody comes around and they have stones, they're ready to stone her. And what does Jesus do? Jesus leans down and he writes something, which by the way, I want to know what he writes. Maybe it's these kind of words. But he writes something and he stands up and he says, you who are without sin, throw the first stone. And what happens? It says the older generation walked away first because they knew they'd sinned. And then the younger generation follows and the woman is left there. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. James talks about how evil desire 
within us gives birth to sin. And sin full grown gives birth to death. And we know that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. This is a moment. Do you weigh enough? So that's number one, the law. Number two, the law of love. This is what Jesus says. Jesus has taught this. Or he teaches this. He's a teacher. What is the greatest commandment? How does he respond? This is the greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And the second is this, just like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. He says all of the law and the prophets are summed up in those two commandments. So let me just ask you then. Have you always loved God with all your heart, soul, and mind? And have you always loved your neighbor as yourself? Even when they park in front of your driveway. Even when they cut you off in traffic. Even when they're annoying and their dog is barking and you're tired of them. Have you always kept the law of love? So you have the law of the Lord, Ten Commandments, you have the law of love. And lastly, I want you to picture a scale. And on one side of the scale is Jesus. That's number three, Jesus. See, our lives cannot measure up, if you didn't catch my drift. Our lives, we can never weigh enough. So that's the standard that we have to set. So when it comes to that scale, I don't know about you, but when I was growing up, I used to think about when I would like die and I would go to heaven or, or hell. I didn't know what was going to happen. I remember getting there and I was going to have this moment where God had his arms crossed. You know what I'm talking about? And there was this massive scale. And on the scale, on one side was like all the bad things I'd ever done, all the mistakes I'd ever made, all the sins I've ever committed. And then on the other side was like all these like good works, like the times I've done good things or you know, help people or whatever. Like, I'm re- I used to think that that was the scale. And I'm like, oh, man, if I can just get a little bit more good, and that, makes, that means I'll get into heaven. And someone said, no, 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 no. If you commit just one of them, you are separated for all of sin and fallen short of the glory of God. And this is where God's sovereign will collides with our responsibility. And what I mean by that is that some of us get the opportunity to see that Jesus died in our place See, God's sovereign will had a plan. And his plan was to send Jesus to be the sacrifice for all of mankind. And now that scale that's balancing like this, now it looks like this, a cross, which can carry the weight of glory. And some of you, I guarantee you, some of you in this room, you've had that experience where you've been fully consumed by the fact that I want to be restored to God. I want to know who you are, God. I want to be reconciled to you. And so in the quietness of your own heart, Maybe a dad or a mom or somebody led you to Jesus and said, pray this prayer. You can give your life to Jesus and there's this peace that washed over you. And now your Holy, the Holy Spirit lives inside of you. For what? Now you have new joy, new purpose, new peace, new satisfaction, new hope. And now you get to live in eternity with the one who made you. And this is the story, the scales. What do you weigh? You know the best part about it? Even if I'm talking right now, I'm looking at so many faces. If you're still thinking right now to yourself, like, I don't know. I don't know if I'm enough. I don't know if I'd weigh enough. The greatest news is, the gospel says that if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. The writing, guess what? It's not on your wall yet. You know how I know that? You have breath in your lungs. You're sitting here right now. Which means you have the opportunity to do exactly what the Bible says here. You can either continue to walk in pride and you will be humbled, or you have the opportunity to give your life to Jesus. And watch as he takes you on this adventure of a lifetime. You'll never regret. So that's number two. Number three, Perez. Perez, is your life filled with worship? 
Is your life filled with worship? Because what happens? The kingdom falls, right? The kingdom of self. So I want you to think about in your life, where is the kingdom of self falling? What is the writing on your wall? The temporary experience, the trial that you're going through right now is meant to what? It's meant to lead you to your knees. It's an invitation to trust. So I want you to think about the thing that's most consuming you right now, the thing that's driving you insane about your life. And think about it. If that thing were to fall, if it were your job, if it were your career, if it were where you're going to go to school next, if it's, are you, are you happy? It's your kids. It's your health. It's your finances. It's your, your security. It's your safety. If that thing were to fall, where would you be? Would you be found on your knees, worshiping? Or would you be found like Belshazzar does? Look what Belshazzar does. Perez, verse 28. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Then at Belshazzar's command. To me, this is like one of the most subtle, incredible things that I've ever seen in the Bible. Because think about this. What happens in Nebuchadnezzar? Let's just read it. Let's just go to it. Nebuchadnezzar says this in Daniel 4. I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven, and my sanity was restored. Then I praised the Most High God. What happens when he's humbled? Seven years, he acts like an animal. And then what? He's restored, and what does he do? He sings a song. If you look in your Bible, it literally is a song. He says, I praised the Most High. What does Belshazzar do? Hey, your day, your kingdom, it's about to fall. It says that Belshazzar commands. He still thinks he's in control. He doesn't fall to his knees and say, no, God, please don't take my life. Please don't take my kingdom. No, he says, hey, that was good. I'm glad you told me the right answer. You can be crowned third in the, the kingdom. And so many of us are the exact same way. Even when the trial hits, we're still trying to control. We're still trying to manipulate. We're, tr we're still trying to say, oh, God, God's going to do this, and then he's going to do it that way. And we still try to explain away the fact that God is just trying to humble us to get to our knees in worship. And so for me in my life, I'll never forget talking about generational change and talking about children of revival, I'll never forget when I was uh, a high school, maybe 14, in high school, freshman year. And I remember I walked in, and my mom had this conversation with my family. And my mom looked at us and said, the writing on the wall is cancer. I don't know what's going to happen next. And I remember I went away. I was frustrated. I went to my room. I was crying out to God. I was saying, why, God? Why would you let this happen? I was frustrated. I knew all the right Sunday school answers. I'd grown up there. And I come back out, and the most powerful thing of that moment and that day was when I walked back out, and I saw my dad holding my mom, and they were praying, and they were praising God in the hardest situation. And I remember I was 15 years old. I'm watching this happen, 14 years old. I'm watching this happen. I'm thinking, how? How does this make sense? How does it make sense that this is the moment where you're going to keep praying, you're going to keep praising God? It doesn't make sense to me. Well, I got the opportunity to live that exact moment out in my own life few weeks ago. See, we started this series, Children of Revival, and I was so fired up. Honestly, I, if you can't tell, I was so fired up about the opportunity to do Children of Revival. You know why? It's because I have one son, and I have one on the way. The Children of Revival, let's go. Come on, Miles, let's get it fired up. Like, let's do this, right? Two days, two days into the series starting, my wife and I find out we have a miscarriage. Two days. And if you were here, I preached a sermon a few weeks ago. That sermon was written staring at the outpatient door of EAMC, the hospital. Because I wasn't even allowed to go in because of COVID to be with her in the surgery. So I'm sitting outside. I'm supposed to write a sermon about the children of revival sitting in my car. 
And afterwards, there's so many God moments that happen in the story I can tell you about later some other time. But afterwards, we have to go back to our normal lives. You know the feeling. I have to go back to my normal life. And that night, we got home. My son's one year old. And we're sitting on the couch. My wife and I are, are praising God. And we're praying because we know that's the only place we know we can turn. And as we're doing that, I watch my son walk over to me. He joins in on the hug. He's there with us. And we're, you know, praying. And then I'm like, you know what? Let's move this party to the kitchen, okay? We want to listen to some worship music. That's where our speaker is. And by the way, you need to know this about my kid. He can clap. That's one party trick. And the second party trick is he can wave. And that's it. <laughs> Let me tell you, he's advanced, okay? Um, so he's always clapping and waving, and that's it. Well, that night, I believe it was a gift from God. He learned a third one. And I took a video of it, and I want to show it to you guys. Check this video out. Yeah, worship, buddy. Good job. Are you Your most pressing trial in this life, it is an opportunity for you to humble yourself. See, because the greatest news, there's a dual reality to the writing on the wall that I just talked about. And the writing on the wall, for so many of us, we don't want to get, to get there because we have not said yes to Jesus yet. But if you are in Christ today, guess what? The writing on the wall is already finished and secured. And your writing on the wall doesn't say that your days are numbered until you go to hell. It doesn't say that you have been weighed and found wanting, so you need to do more good works. It doesn't say that your kingdom of self has fallen and now you're gonna spend eternity separated from God. No, if you are in Christ today, the writing on your wall was said and secured by Jesus, and it says, it is finished. This is the opportunity that we get to step into. We get to step into the fact that Jesus now becomes our sacrifice what I deserve. So now when God sees me, he doesn't see my sin, he sees his son. And so many of you in this room, as you're encountering God, I just need to tell you, you know what Jesus says? He says, yeah, your days on this number, on this, on this earth are gonna go away one day, but guess what? My kingdom lasts forever. He says, all who come to me, I will give eternal life. None shall perish and they cannot take. No one or nothing can take you out of my hand says you've been weighed. No, no, no. We've been weighed by the sacrifice of Jesus. And now it says that all of our debt, all of our sin has been nailed to a cross so that we can be made alive in Christ. And the last thing is what? Your kingdom will fall. But guess what? Your kingdom of self will fall. My kingdom of self will fall. But the kingdom that I get the opportunity to live for never falls and never fails. The kingdom of God lasts forever. And now Jesus stands there and says, repent, the kingdom has come near. And all of us in this room, that's the invitation. You have the opportunity. If you've never said yes to Jesus, this might've just been for you, for you to finally lay down your life and say, God, I surrender all. But if you've been walking in a season where it's been so difficult and God feels so far away and God feels like he's a million miles from your situation or circumstance, guess what? you get to humble yourself again. 
That's what Nebuchadnezzar did. He went through the hardest trial, but he still got down on his knees and said, I exalted and praised and glorified God. So I'm going to give you guys that opportunity. If you bow your heads and close your eyes, Father, God, I just, I can't explain it. But God, I know you're speaking to hearts right now. I don't understand how this happens. I don't understand how you initiate salvation. That in your sovereign will, you had a collision with earth today. So God, I pray you would speak life into the mom who's hurting. You'd speak hope into the girl whose identity has been shattered. You speak words of wisdom to the parents in the room who are holding on to their kids so tightly. Let them know that you have them in your hands. So Father, I pray right now for the person who's on the edge, the brink of giving your life, their life to Jesus. God, I pray you'd push them over the edge. If that's you and you want to give your life to Jesus, just say a simple prayer. Jesus, I give you my life. I'll never be the same. Father, I pray for everybody else in the room who's discovering what it looks like to live a life not for self, but for Savior. So Father, I thank you that in your power and your matchless mighty name, you have done a work. So God, I pray that we would extol your name. We would point everybody back to you. We thank you that your love broke down the wall separating us from you forever. So God, we just want to pour it back out. Thank you for loving us first. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.